If you have your Bibles, turn into uh, John chapter 13. Uh, and you may want to put a marker in John chapter 1. We're going to start in John 1, but then we'll catch up to John 13. Since tomorrow's Valentine's Day, I thought uh, it'd be good to talk about love, and kind of that matches into this life-giving sermon series that we're in. So we're going we're gonna to connect all of that together uh, today. But I was thinking, in, in lieu of Valentine's Day, and just um, with that coming up and thinking stuff like that, what, uh, have you ever had one of those situations where someone showed you love, or they, they did something in your life that just totally changed you, that they did something for you that totally changed the way you saw yourself, totally changed the way you saw the world uh, around you. This is like a daily thing uh, in my relationship with Haley, because I've, I've learned that if Haley ever like goes on a trip for a while and I'm by myself, um, that I just like eat cookies for dinner every night. And I'm like, man, she changes me way for the better because she makes sure that I don't like just eat cookies for, for dinner. But I, th- I think we all have a, s- a handful of stories where someone did something for us or, or with us uh, or to us in a way that just totally changes the way we, we see the world. Whenever I was in college, my, my sophomore year, my uh, step-grandfather passed away. And so uh, I had to take a few days off of class and head to my dad's house where uh, I spent a few days. And, and you got to no, Tennessee has this really weird cultural thing that I didn't realize was really weird until I moved to New Mexico. That's, that's how culture works, right? You don't realize how weird your culture is until you move away from it. You're like, oh, that was weird. Why did we do it that way? Um, but in Tennessee, when someone passes away, uh, usually what the family will do is you will go for two or three days to the funeral home and do what they call visitation. Um, and, and what that is, is the person who passed away, they'll uh, prepare the body, and they'll put the body in the casket and on display there in the funeral home. And the family will literally, like, this is going to sound really morbid. I didn't mean it to sound morbid, but you'll, like, stand up there, and there'll be, like, an amusement park line of people, like, coming up, saying they're sorry, and then, like, walking away. And you just do that for, for two or three days. Um, that's not a thing here in New Mexico, at least that I've seen, and I'm so grateful for it, because what it, what it usually resulted in is um, they would always have this like little room where people would bring food and stuff, and you would just, for me as a grandchild, would go sit in that room for two or three days and just eat cookies, you know, because again, that's what I do best apparently. Um, but I'll never, I'll never forget, my, my step-granddad had passed away, and we were in the funeral home. It was the first day, and I was just sitting in there working on some homework, and the pastor of my dad's church, his name is Pastor Gary Few, um, he, he came and uh, brought, brought his laptop case, and he just sat down next to me. He opened up his laptop. He made some small talk with me. And then he just began working on his sermon. Um, and throughout the day, he, he would just, how are you doing? How's school? What do you think about this? Here's what I'm studying for my sermon. And we would just have these conversations. Nothing major, nothing over the top. But I remember at the end of that day realizing that that man sitting next to me in that situation had more of an impact on my life and on my ministry than any sermon I'd ever listened to. And I remember thinking, that's the type of pastor I want to be one day. Because just his presence, just taking the time where, and he's doing the same thing that he would have done if he was in his office. He just did it from a funeral home dining table uh, right next to me. Just totally changed the way, the way he loved me. Totally changed that. And I'm not sure I'm always there as a pastor, but that's how I try to be. Because I've learned that it's, it's those types of interactions that totally just change the way relationships function. And forever, he will be one of the most impactful men in my life. Not from saying anything profound, not from doing anything, but just by sitting right next to me at a time that I needed somebody. Have you had an experience like that where someone just 
They took time out of their day. They took time out of their lives. This is, you know, where a roommate stays up with you to study for a final, not, not because they even have a final, but because they don't, they don't want you to fail, so they're going to stay up and study with you for that final. Or uh, when, when your spouse knows that you've had a tough week, and even though uh, there hasn't been a, you know, a, a cakewalk, theirs hasn't been a cakewalk, they're go out of their way to cook you dinner and clean the house and bathe the kids just so you can, can rest. I think it's those types of loving situations where love gives life. This is what it means for love to give life. And why is that? Well, if you remember last week, for those of you that were here, uh, we had talked about how God gives life through bringing order to chaos. And it's situations like this where where someone just kind of infiltrates the chaos of life and brings order. This, This is Pastor Gary sitting next to me when my grandfather passed away, or this is uh, my wife when she says, don't eat cookies for dinner, let me cook for you instead. Like that's, that's the way we experience life-giving love. So last week we, we talked about this with this idea of Genesis 1 where, where God brings order to chaos, that God's mere presence in Genesis 1-2 turns the chaotic uh, deep waters into, we use the Hebrew words tehom and hamayim, uh, chaotic deep waters and distilled waters that God is just calming and bringing order to things. And then he starts to bring order to the universe by dividing and creating and let there be light and, and let the waters divide and let there be birds and, and fish and all of this stuff that God creates so that God would make life. And then we briefly at the end of last week looked at Genesis 3 where the serpent threatens this perfect order by, by trying to create disorder. By convincing Eve that that she and Adam could take the position of God. But even as the chaos of sin begins to wreak havoc on Adam and Eve in their own relationships and in their relationship with God, God comes in and he makes this promise in Genesis 3.15. That although the serpent may bruise man's heel, that man would crush the serpent's head once and for all. And so God again gives life by bringing order to the chaos, as he loves Adam and Eve despite their sinful nature, as he forgives them of their sin, as he gives them hope that one day he would conquer sin once and for all in some amazing way, that God gives life by bringing order to to chaos. And where where are those three things, love, forgiveness, hope? Do, Do you see any particular person in the Bible just like embody those three attributes in their life? Jesus, right? That if you go and you read the gospel, you're going to find story after story after story of God himself wrapped in flesh, bringing love and forgiveness and hope to the world around him in a way that gives people life. And John, in the book of John, picks up on these things. In fact, John, his whole theme is about how God is squelching chaos and giving life in his creation, and he connects them all directly to Jesus. So if you're in John chapter 1, let me, let me start there, because you'll notice some, some pretty clear connections between John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. And John's doing this intentionally. John 1, 1 begins, in the beginning. Is there another phrase in the Bible that starts with, in the beginning? Genesis 1, 1. John is paralleling these two things. He, he wants you to understand that what he's building is not just this story of a man that had lived about 50, 60 years ago, he's telling the story of a man that has existed from eternity, of God himself wrapped in flesh. And so he's going to take us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and connect in the beginning. And he's going to use this word, word. That's that's a weird 
syntax there. But he's going to use the word, word. Uh, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So if you go back to Genesis 1, in verse 3, how does God begin to create? He speaks. He says something. So what John's going to do is he's going to take the words that Jesus speaks that, that brings life and creation, and he's going to tie that word and say that, that word was Jesus. So in Genesis chapter 1, you have God the Father creating, God the Spirit hovering over the abyss, and God the Son. It, it's the Trinity at work from eternity, that, that Jesus has always existed. And then John's going to keep drawing some things in verse 4. In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Genesis 1 is telling this whole story about how God is going to say, let there be light, and the dark chaos waters cannot overcome what God has created. You see all of these parallels that John is lying out right here, laying out for us between here and Genesis. John is quite literally layering the person of Jesus over the creation story, that Jesus is the light that provides a way for life. And then John's going to use this entire book to go on about how Jesus' whole purpose is to give life. I don't know, is there any key verses in the book of John where Jesus talks about bringing life to the world? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And and even more than that, if you go to the end of the book of John, chapter 20, verse 31, John's going to give his thesis statement. Here's the reason I wrote this book. And he says this, "But, but these things are written so that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life. How does God give life? Through Jesus. God gives life through giving Jesus. Now, there's, there's some things that we could break in with here and talk about, because if we say God gives life through giving Jesus, and we know that Jesus is God, then we could also say God gives life through giving himself. And you'll notice that this is another thing that John is going to pick up on, about how God is always giving of himself. But if God gives life through giving Jesus, the next question we should ask, I think, is, well, then, how does Jesus give life? This is where we get to John chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, you can get to John 13. Let me set up a little bit of the story here, and uh, we'll, we'll jump into this. So this is the opening section in John over the final few hours of Jesus' life. John's going to record this final Passover scene, and he's going to give some, some final teachings of Jesus, and he's going to give the story of the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so he's getting ready to, to launch this whole thing off, and he has two kind of parts to all of this. One, he wants to tell about the transition uh, within the heart of Judas, that he would soon betray Jesus and what's happening there. And then number two, he just wants to give the story of how Jesus lives out his final day before, before he passes away. So I say that to say, uh, as we go through 13, we're going to skip around a little bit today. I'm not trying to avoid anything that I'm like, that's too hard. Uh, the parts that we're avoiding are just John's discussion of Judas's transition. Uh, into betraying Jesus, and and those are relevant, but I'm not wanting to focus on that. I want to focus on this other aspect in John chapter 13. And I think all this is vital to understand because you guys heard the question, you know, what what would you do if you only had one day to live? And a lot of times we say, I would go to this restaurant or I would eat this food or spend time with this person. What does Jesus do when he has one day left to live? John 13, 
verse 1. We'll just go through verse 5 for now. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to come to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when it's time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God so that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, he laid his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. So we can ask the question, what would you do if you had one day left? What did Jesus do? When you have one day left, he washed feet. Our Savior washed feet on his one day left. I mean, that's not profound in itself. I, I don't know what is, but let, let's get into this. You see, we kick off in, in 13, verse 1, where at the latter half of it, John just makes a note. Having loved his own, he loved them until the end. What's the motivation behind what Jesus is doing? It's, it's love. So if we want to say God gives life through giving Jesus, how does Jesus give life? Well, Jesus gives life through giving love. Jesus gives life through love. Having loved his own, he loved them till the end. So, so this idea of the end, Jesus has continually been predicting this rapidly approaching moment of his death. Now, some commentaries will say that this till the end is better understood as like till completion. So having loved his disciples, he loved them completely. And there is some truth to that, I think. But I think when we get into understanding this, you got to understand, Jesus is soon to be arrested. He's soon to be tried, beaten, mocked, hung on a cross, and, and killed. And even more significantly than all of that, Jesus was soon to bear the weight of the world's sin on his own shoulders. So it's not like Jesus pulls up the calendar on his phone and it's like, all right, uh, wash disciples' feet, uh, pray in the garden, get arrested, be brutally murdered for the sins of the world. That's just the checklist for my Friday today. We don't miss the weight of this. In Luke's gospel, when Luke tells this story, and when Jesus gets to the garden and he begins to, to face in the dirt, cry out to God the Father, you know what Luke says? That Jesus begins to sweat blood that the weight of the situation is not passed over for Jesus. He understands the gravity of what is to come. Yet even so, his point was not, hey guys, this is just a really hard time in my life right now and I really needed you to be with me, so you know, let's, let's be serious for a few moments. His last few hours is not about, I need your help, that Jesus, even fully knowing the gravity of what's to happen, turns around and washes his disciples' feet. That's the way our Savior loves us. Already, John is setting the tone of what life-giving love means. It's entirely others-focused. It's entirely others-focused, even the most difficult situations. And already, we can just camp out for a little bit and ask this question, do we love like that? Is that the love portrayed at First Baptist Church of Portales? Because I'm not sure, if I was being honest with you, that I'm super great at that selfless type of love, even when things are good. That there's this thing within me that says, yeah, you should love somebody, but love's kind of transactional, so only love them if they can give you something back. And that's how I want to treat it. When the gospel's going to come in and say, no, that's not what real love is. It's fully devotionally selfless. 
Oh, and, and this just isn't some sort of nod to Jesus really liking to spend time with his disciples and loving them. Jesus loved them till the end. It's, it's proven in action. This is John's whole next part in giving the story of how Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And this probably could go without having to be said, but let me just, just remind you of a few things. Put this in context. Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, they, you know, they didn't have really nice sidewalks. Uh, it wasn't luscious grassy meadows with dandelions. This is dirt paths. And they don't have a boot barn where they can go buy some cowboy boots. They don't have a sports shop where they can buy some really nice tennis shoes. The best that they're going to have is maybe some leather strap sandals just to keep the bottom of their feet from stepping on thorns and stuff like that. Oh, and by the way, they, they walked everywhere. So, so yeah, let me add one more thing. There's no running water in your house. So it's not like you get to go home and, and run your feet in the bathtub and clean them off real good. So, so you can do the equation, right? Uh, dirt roads, old sandals, no baths. You know what that equals? A job that's reserved for the lowliest slave. This was the thing that if you had any form of servants or slave, you would, you would use this as punishment if they did something you didn't like. Hey, it's your job today to go wash the feet. It's, it's a humiliating job. So, so please, don't let this story normalize as something typical that makes sense. I think we hear this story so often, and it's just like, yeah, that's just who Jesus is. He washes feet, and we move on. I think if you could go back in time and listen to John tell this story to an early church. Guys, let me tell you about the night before he was betrayed. Here's what Jesus did. I think you would hear audible gasps, and people would wince thinking about washing feet like that. That's just not something that someone like Jesus would do. That's not something that someone of that caliber would ever lower themselves to that position. I, I was trying to think of a way to like con connect that. So honestly, I, I considered like Googling gross, nasty feet and like putting a picture up there. And I was like, I can't even bring myself to do that. I don't even want to look at that. Like that's, and Jesus washed that. Like, do you see the gravity of what Jesus is doing? That he would love in this capacity, in this way. Why does he do it? Just because he loves them. A life-giving love demands the denial of self. And, and honestly, it should make you a bit uncomfortable. And if that makes you a bit uncomfortable, you're not going to like the next part, verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master. A messenger is not greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed to do them. See, Jesus gives his purpose. He's demonstrating his love for his disciples, but, but that love comes with a direct application. Just as I consider my rights, Jesus is saying, just as I considered my rights and my pride as less than yours, leading me to serve you, you need to love each other likewise. The, the point is this. There is nothing beneath a disciple when it comes to loving another disciple. 
There is nothing beneath a disciple when it comes to loving another disciple. There's been some discussion that comes out of this, and some have argued, well, maybe this was like another reiteration of some kind of Christian ordinance, like Lord's Supper or baptism, that this is something we need to literally practice. And I don't think that's necessarily true, although I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think what Jesus is getting at is this symbolic idea. I read one commentary that said this. Certainly, there's no harm in the literal practice of foot washing, but the symbolism of this practice seems more appropriately replicated in the way we serve people in a variety of ways. So let me, let me say this. Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. The love that we should hold within First Baptist Portalis is a love that should drive us to do things like work in the nursery and change babies' diapers so that their parents can come in and worship in here. Do you see how that's lowering yourself so that someone else might be lifted up? Or, or it's giving up your Saturday to help someone else's yard. Or it's getting that midnight call that someone's in the hospital and you get up and go just, just to set with them, not that you can fix anything. This is the, the figurative idea of what Jesus is portraying. That we would consider ourselves less than one another and go and love one another in this way. The intent is clear. We love each other the way Jesus loves us. Oh, and if you didn't get that, just go ahead and jump down to verse 34 because Jesus is going to paint it right out for you. He's washed the feet. He's having a discussion, and then he just says, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And then he clarifies it, and he says this in verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Question, how, how will the people out there know who we are in here? And I could probably just start by giving you how they'll not know who we are in here. The people out there do not know who we are in here by the size of our building. They do not know who we are by our policies or our politics. They do not know who we are by our traditions or the way we dress. They don't know who we are by our annual budget or by the professionalism of our online streams or anything like that. The people out there know who we are in here when we what? love one another. So we could lay this out and say, if, if God gives life through giving Jesus and Jesus gives life through love, then how does First Baptist Church Portales give life? Love. First Baptist gives life through love. I have to confess, uh, as, so, so usually throughout the week, um, David and I will have, uh, Pastor David and I will have pastoral meetings, and what our pastoral meetings are is we go up in the youth room and play ping pong and talk about the sermons. That's just what we do. We play ping pong, talk about the sermon. Um, and so this week, I, I was getting, heading up there. Him and I were just talking about it. And I was like, man, David, I'm just struggling. I just feel like this sermon, man, it's just, it's just like not dynamic. It's just not there. And David looks at me with like this most confused face. And he's like, what do you mean it's not dynamic? It's the story of God washing feet. Man, if we miss the dynamic part of that, we've missed scripture. You don't have to decorate that up. There's nothing I need to do to add to that. God himself wrapped himself in flesh and then washed feet. That's how much he loves us. That's the type of God he is for us. God has given us life by giving us Jesus. And Jesus, God wrapped in flesh, gives us life through total selfless love. It's a complete reversal of everything we would expect from the all-powerful God creating the universe in Genesis chapter 1. And that's John's whole point. 
is that everything you know God to be in his power, in his infinite glory, even so, no, he loves you to the point of humiliating himself for you. Because all of this is just pointing to what would come next. That the word of God which created and organized the universe would become flesh and wash feet. But he wouldn't just stop at washing dirt and grime away with water. But he would go on to wash sins away with his blood. Paul picks up on this in Philippians 2. It's his exact point when he gives this poem and he says, Adopt the same attitude of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gives life through giving love. And if you want to talk about what that love is rooted in, I would just remind you, it is a love that is rooted in humble service. And if I was honest with you, I've kind of waffled on this a little bit this, this week. Part of me would want to argue that we should maybe even change that word humble to humiliating. Much more negative word and connotation, and I get that. But I think that's what Jesus is getting at. That he would humiliate himself for the sake of his creation and the sake of those he loves. He would humiliate himself in washing his disciples' feet. And he would go on to humiliate himself by dying a criminal's death. You guys understand when we, when we paint the picture of the cross, we still allow for Jesus to have some dignity on the cross. You guys have seen these crucifixion paintings where like, it looks like Jesus spent like six hours a day working out. And he's got like his loincloth on. And guys, when Jesus died, they hung him completely naked in front of his mother and his friends and everyone else. He was humiliated. Why? Because that's how our God loves us. That's how our God thinks of us, that he would give his entire value in life just to save broken humanity. God loves us rooted in this humilifying service. So let me connect all of these pieces. First and foremost, man, if this, if this is something new to you, Please know that the God of the universe loves you in this way. And what he wants from you is not any list of good deeds. What he's looking for you is not any way of being like, look at God, what I've done for you. What God is wanting from you is you just to come and lay your life down and say, God, I can't do it on my own. I need your help to put your faith in the God who loves you this much and trust that he could bring you forgiveness. If you've not done that Please come talk to me this morning. And maybe you have done that, but right now you just need to be reminded how much God loves you. Because if we were honest, we forget sometimes. But God loves you so much. Romans 5 says that he loves you in this way. That he sent Jesus to die for you even while you were still a sinner. This is how God loves us. And if you know that, then I would just say this. And God expects that when we come to know that life-giving love, then guess what it's going to do? It's 
going to lead us to love each other in the exact same way. Paul, Paul says this exact same thing before he launches into that poem in Philippians 2. Right before that, he says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Do you guys want to see First Baptist Church become and, and embody this idea of a life-giving church? Then it means we have to love. And what do we root that love in? Humble service. And again, maybe just to prove a point, I would go overboard and, and use that word humiliating service. Because when it comes to loving the people in this room, there's no job too small. There's nothing too insignificant. There's nothing too gross or whatever it would be because God's loved me beyond that. I should be able to love you beyond that. And do you think that if this is the type of church that First Baptist Church exists to be, a church with just full, humble service in love, might it change the way we give life? Might people out there start to recognize there's something going on in that church? Might there be a draw, not so that they could come to know our love, but that they might see God's love on display. They might come to know the true love of their maker. This is who God is calling us to be. And it starts as we love one another. Father God, we thank you for what you call us to be. And we thank you for your love. And God, it, it's, it's beyond me to even be able to describe it. To think about the hands that molded mountains, rubbing feet, and then being pierced for my forgiveness, God. Please don't let us lose the weight and the value of this story. And God, I pray right now that you would just... If there's anyone here that doesn't know of that love, that you would rest heavily upon their hearts, that you know them and love them in that way, but you're calling them to give up their lives for you. And for those of us that know that love, God, would you lead us to being that church that would truly be a church of life-giving love to this community, that we would lay our life and our pride and our status aside to embrace the God who loves us in the town that you also love. God, help us to be a life-giving church through love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.